0: it's happening again welcome to work cookie Dot .com
1: Welcome, I'm Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw with us, a voice and speech coach and a damn good actor too. He is the official voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community.
2: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CBOC online three-day convention. Here we are in day three. In the second part of the day, it is getting close to us wrapping up for our very first conference, but we're going to talk about the importance of evidence-based research. So, Dr. Destiny, not being an I.O., I know it's important, but Why?
3: Well, evidence is really the cornerstone of IO psychology, right? And so not only is it the cornerstone here at CBOC, Society of Evidence-Based Organizational Consulting, but it is really what differentiates our practice, our field from other practices in other fields. Um, you know, it is the cornerstone. It empowers us to make informed decisions that can drive real change. And so Whenever we show up in an organization, if they don't know how to use us, I always encourage everyone to say that you are the science practitioner. You can take research, best practices, you can look at their competitive landscape, you can do all of these things and you can figure out how to draw and bring that evidence and bring those approaches into practice and even potentially modify that. So you also are equipped when you leave a program with the skills to create personalized, proprietary type of approaches, interventions, preventions for organizations. Think about the power of that, right? And it can feel really overwhelming sometimes if this is new to you. So we're here to talk about maybe some of the strategies, what kind of sources we're getting things from, and then how to kind of implement that and show up as a science practitioner in any given
2: workplace. Well, let me ask you, because Jeremy's mentioned talking to Dr. Patty Delgado that, you know, there's like 17, 18 years gap between research being done and it actually becoming practical. So with research constantly changing and evolving, especially now, how do you stay current?
3: That's a great question. And even yesterday in the chat, somebody was mentioning that they're, you know, looking at specialized topics and there's not a lot of research out there. A lot of what you're seeing out there, especially with all these trendy things, is very anecdotal. It's very empirical. But what comes out of those is best practices, right? So we know through experiences what we shouldn't be doing (laughs) and what we should be doing or what other people are doing and what can we learn from other people. And so I think that there, yes, there is a gap officially, but I do think in practice, We find how to fill those gaps quicker by looking around and figuring out where those more reputable sources and more reputable type of approaches are coming from, and then really figuring out how to put those back into practice. So I'm sure that there is a much better answer that, you know, Dr. Delgado could provide. I know that she might not be here today. I'm not sure if somebody's going to be standing in her place, but I do know that there are a lot of other experts here who probably utilize evidence-based approaches and can maybe help further that
2: dialogue and answer that question. Uh, Let me ask you this. And and once again, this might not be a question that you can easily answer, but I remember talking to a branding expert about 10, 12 years ago, who was not a big fan of marketers, who was like, you've got to be very careful. And one of the things that he said was, you know, marketers come out of post-secondary and they're very eager to implement what they've learned. But the marketing strategies that they've learned are 10 years old because in the academic process, it just takes that long for it to you know become part of a textbook. So are those grad students which are listening today, are they using the most current information and knowledge or are they 10 years behind?
3: That is a great question. In fact, it's something that I often talk about, especially in my background with the military and the government. I always say the government's at least a decade behind the workforce trends, um, at least. And then whenever you have events like covid um, in the pandemic that speed up the the you know, transformation of the workforce. Think about how, you know, that domino effect, like they're not going to necessarily be able to catch up as quickly. And, you know, we're we're feeling that impact right now, right? as a workforce overall. We're seeing people like being, you know, pulled in back to regular, you know work, going to the office rather than the hybrid, which they were forced to do when there's all these things. So, yes, there will always be, like a lingering time period between, you know, what you're learning in academics, and then what you're also like, what's actually happening in the workforce. And that's why it's so critical to keep up with the trends and like what's actually happening, um, finding those really reputable, once I get, once again, I'm saying the reputable sources, um, to see what's actually happening, and then being able to understand you know based on those trends where you can start paying attention to and trying to implement those you know transformations within your own workplace so but there is there is a gap and i think that in some ways the gap can be a good thing and in some ways the gap can be a really bad thing right so because there's there's a learning curve with any approach that is new or different or innovative so keep that in mind too that there will always be that kind of steep learning curve and you know it takes time for that to come out And and figure out what to do with it. So,
2: well, well, let me ask you because, you know, if we're looking at something like remote work or, you know, hybrid online, it's not new. Back, I think in the 80s, IBM was experimenting with it and found out that it really works well. (laughs) And so, all of a sudden, you know, three years ago, we all got forced into lockdowns and having to work from home. And there was a lot of issues with it. Uh, we started to hear about Zoom dysmorphia or Zoom fatigue, uh, which was really interesting to me because part of the Zoom fatigue thing is that people weren't blinking. They were staring <laughs> intently at their screen and not blinking, uh, which can be incredibly tiring. But the world of work has changed because of what we went through. Do we ha- Have we had enough time yet to analyze exactly what were the benefits What were the drawbacks and how we can, especially as an IO successfully transition an organization to online?
3: I'm not sure that we from a research perspective can say and make these, you know, assumption statements and then outcome statements, but I do know that there has been a ton of work being done. There has been a ton of, you know, benefits being, you know, talked about. There's smaller scale approaches, smaller scale studies that have been happening that have been showing the positive impacts in certain situations. Some workforces do need to have direct face-to-face interaction and some do not. And so I think that, you know, we're finding that through like lots of different sources as to why and, 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 you know, what we can do with that information. So, but I know there is a ton of other experts here who are really knowledgeable about even particularly this topic, especially from the HR perspective, like Linda Ann, who has her hand up. So I would love to move it
4: over to Linda Ann. (laughs) Let's
2: do that. Linda Ann, over to you.
4: I, you know, I'm not the evidence-based person, but I'm the person who really works with, you know, how do you implement it and how you facilitate that process. And to understand that when you go into to an organization and start using this evidence-based data, think about how it applies to all aspects of the business. You know, if you go ahead and implement it in this one section, well, how is that going to affect your productivity or how is that going to affect your employee engagement or your recruitment process or your accounting process? What's that long, you know, how does it get implemented into the accounting piece and, and doing your profitability analysis, all those kinds of things. And really looking at the organization as a whole, because I think sometimes when you come in on one side, it can be a little bit about a little bit like squeezing a balloon where you push it, you put it in one part, and then you, you you see this other effect over here. So I just would, like to hear what people have to say about how you implement it, implement the use of evidence-based data so that they you're taking into account the holistic approach to um, an organization so that there's not a an odd effect or a pushback in some other part of the organization that can undermine the process.
2: Here's kind of a weird question for you, but if there was research done in a specific area that could give you that, evidence-based research to answer some questions that are maybe burning in your mind. What is that research that needs to be done? What what area of of work would you love to see some research done into?
4: Wow, that's you caught me off guard on that <laughs> one, Tom. Um, um, <laughs> it's probably got to be in leadership somewhere.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we seem to have forgotten about leadership about 20 years ago and all of a sudden there's a demand. Surprise, surprise. All right. Thank you very much, Linda.
5: And Lee, let's go to you. It's, it's interesting to me because having graduated so long ago and not having worked in the field, I mean, my active research experience is a bit dated. So what I found so fascinating though is being involved in Work Cookie and all these kind of stuff, and actually moving more into this space and being part of these discussions. And you know, you be on these things with Destiny and Jeremy, and they're just like word vomiting all this this research stuff out, and it so often validates the experience that I've had because, you know, I mean, as, you know, as scientific practitioners, you know, we're, we're taught to observe, we're taught to, to even when you're not in a research type thing, you pay attention to things that you wouldn't necessarily pay attention to without that, that training and exposure. And so I noticed things that that, Maybe I, I wouldn't notice or other people don't notice. And so when they bring out these, these studies and they go through and they're oh, you know, so-and-so so and so-and-so and so says, and they did it, and I'm like, yeah, I've been there, you know, we did that. And it's, so it's, it's really cool to, to get that validation that what I thought was happening was probably happening because the research backs me up, even though I didn't know it at the time. And, and, you know, and with that lagged research, it's also interesting because you're, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, I knew that 20 years ago. And they're like, well, you know, the research is just getting caught up to that. But, yeah, the, and the work from home thing is, is an interesting phenomenon. I, I did some work from home back in the, the late 90s. And I had one boss who was like, a couple of days a week, do your thing, whatever, you know, just keep in touch, answer the phone if it rings. And then I got another boss and he was just against it. And at some point I was like, what is your, what is the deal? I mean, I worked at home fine. I never had an issue and it had nothing to do with me. It was in a previous job when he was younger, he had been based out of his house. Wife didn't work, small child. Mm. They were there, you know, no, no separate space. And so his concept was that you have all these distractions. And I had small children at the time. And I'm like, no, my wife works and the kids go to daycare preschool when i'm at home working it's just me i'm i'm getting more done than i am here and it's just like you know and you can see the light bulb going over his head maybe maybe things are different than my experience was and and so it's really interesting to see those things you know because now we've got some data that shows people go to the you know home and they they their productivity increases because they're cutting out the distractions you're cutting out the chit chat you know whatever else and but i can't see you how do I know you're working? Well, you know, I'm working because I'm producing. Yeah. Oh, but I can't see you. And so you get, you're getting a lot of the, you know, the old school people are like, I got to have you in the office. I got to be able to put eyeballs on you. And, and let's face it, there are some people who can't work at home because there are too many distractions at home because, you know, oh, look, the soaps are on. Oh, I need to, you know, wash clothes. Oh, look, I need to vacuum. So it doesn't work for everyone. But, but yeah, I've been finding that pretty fascinating too.
2: Yeah, it it doesn't work for everyone, but for those who do, it works really well. (laughs) Jeannie, let's go to you.
6: I would just like to say, in answer to your question, Tom, earlier, is if anything, the new graduates are more knowledgeable about the current research because any assignment that they have to work on, the research they have to do is within five to seven years of a published date. So if anything, they have the most new or the newest uh, information out there, but, but the delay I think with the new graduates is they don't really teach you how to translate the academia into practical use for leaders and managers because the managers and leaders don't speak academia, they speak real business. And so there's, there's a gap between the knowledge of how do I adequately use the research to talk to the leaders and not have them disregard me. And I think that's the biggest problem with the new practitioners just coming out of, of grad school is we don't speak their language.
2: Well, let me go back to you, Dr. Destiny, on that, because Jeannie brings up an interesting point where in my own experience, especially when I started out about you know 25 years ago doing corporate work, I had some corporate people say to me, you know, I, I tried to hire a speech coach before and it was another actor and they were just so artsy fartsy. <laughs> And, you know, one of the things I was you know, instructed before I even started the corporate work was this is a different audience. You can't speak to them like actors because that's not their world. How do you do that translation from academia to practical wording even that relates to a business community?
3: It's a great question. You know. It starts kind of, it's, it's back to almost the research process itself. You almost have to replicate it, but like maybe through a business acumen lens, right? Or a business perspective lens. So if you think of it that way, you know, you identify that relevant research and then you understand organizational context. I think that's the key right there is where does it fit, gain a deep understanding of the organization's culture, their structure, their goals, their challenges, And then that will help you tailor those research findings to that specific need of the organization. So that's where, you know, for me, for example, my background being DOD, Department of Defense and military and more of the certification space. So I then take the business acumen and those acronyms that I understand. And then I start translating, literally becoming a translator between what does the research say? This is like academic how we talk. Because a lot of times when I show up in different forums, like I I think I mentioned this before that the military likes to call or the government likes to call us psychometricians. And so if you have a psychometrician showing up a lot, I mean, I've been at like the table with like the top intelligence agency professionals, like in in the world. And they're like the psychometricians here. And so they they don't even know what that means. And then they're like making assumptions. And so I have to start talking their language. And so I say, no, no, like I'm here, but let me just explain this data to you. And let me explain what the previous things have done like you all. And I really translate with their language in mind. And I kind of give them that peace of mind. And then from that, you extract those key insights, you translate the research language and then you specifically link it to their business outcomes and their business objectives. So that process can be hard because sometimes they're fearful of what that could mean for them and like what the process looks like and what if that's that research isn't really what we're looking for. So it's your job to really modify that approach and then to also just once again, like ease it, ease them into that approach with you and, and tailor it, tailor it, tailor it. And we'll talk about job search and techniques later, but tailoring even your resume, for example, is, is is, it goes through practice. So it's the same thing you, it's going to be practice to tailor a research approach or, or, you know, best practices approach to a business problem or a business challenge or a business preventative measure.
2: Where are your go-tos to get solid research? Because, you know, you, you want to make sure that what you're using is not outdated, that it's the most current, that it's been peer-reviewed. So are there places that IOs need to be you know, looking at for this research?
3: There are a lot of places you can go. Um, some of you may have access, if you're students, to your online library. So that's the first place. There are cer- certain kind of journals that you can look at. There's like the personnel journal. There's like an I.O. journal. There's HR journals. The, they, the list goes on and on. PSYOP Society of I.S. Psychology, has a research gate as well, where they will post some of the most current PSYOP, basically kinds of uh, topics. For example, another place for me, I go to division 19 of APA, which is the military division. I have, I get their journal article every quarter and it's got all the most relevant stuff that sometimes you can't even find. So those are, those are the most like official academic places. However, you know, you can go in, out there and see what other organizations like McKinsey, you know, all your large scale Deloitte, Booz, what all of those organizations are doing out there as far as from a best best industry practice approach. Um, and then there's also just other, I wrote this, there's a list I have, let me pull it up, I gotta find it, you know, professional associations uh, often have different research journals google scholar in the in the chat i mentioned consensus.app which is a really awesome tool it's an ai tool where you can ask it certain questions Um, So if you're in a um, organization as, you know, an IO or a uh, consultant and they're having a challenge, you can literally ask it a question and it'll give you really good open source. So it's not necessarily gated information It's you can actually access it from anywhere. So there's a lot of tools. And I know that there's a lot more tools that people are using out there, but those are some of the tools that I use. Um, And I will also go and ask other people that are doing similar work across the industry and ask them where they're pulling their information from. So, just some, you know, that's where the whole connection thing comes into place, too, here, right? Like connecting, knowing where to go. Maybe other people are doing similar work or have done something in the past and going to them and asking them where their resources are from,
2: too. It would be very cool to say to a client, um, this isn't official research, yes, but I know the people who are doing the research and that's this right. is what they're finding. Melinda um, right. Ann, let's go to you. This is a question for
4: Destiny. So, to follow up on what you said regarding the implementation of research and how you interpret the research for what they may need. Often an organization has in, in their collective head what they think their need is, regardless of whether that's what the data shows or what their actual need is. And so how, what would you recommend to people as they go forward to get the organization to understand, I understand that they think that they have X problem, but the data show is showing why problem and how do you bridge that gap for them? What's that, what's that technique that you use or approach or how do you get them to understand that what they think they need isn't what they actually need?
3: So I actually work with an organization right now that sometimes likes to, what I always say, fight me on everything that I say. (laughs) And I mean that in the nicest way. It's always like we're playing judo or whatever, you know, we're like, yeah, 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 you know, going back and forth. And so what I've realized the best way to communicate what I'm trying to say, because often what I'm trying to say, I know will come with some almost like they take it a little personal, even sometimes, where it's like it's not personal. This is truly business. Is I really always, always map it back to strategic objectives, period. Like if it's even if it's not what they want to hear, I show them, I say, look, we're and I'll even break it down strategically. Like this is your objective. This is your, you know, large scale objective, this is your whatever map they have, their KPIs, I will map it, I map it, I map it, and I clearly articulate to them. Um, And I also make sure that whenever I suggest something, and and Jeremy is really good at this, Jeremy knows how to coach people through uh, making it seem like it's their idea. We talked about this yesterday, uh, making it seem like yes, maybe they don't like it, but if you ask them questions a certain way, you can actually coach them through almost convincing them that it's something that they should be looking into. And if you do it through the mapping process as well, I mean, this is all, I feel like we're talking psychologically now, the behaviorally thing, you know, but that's really what our field's about. I mean, if we're doing them something by, you know, really digging into the research, if it's evidence approached and we're, you know, I think it's okay to feel good about being able to do it that way. So I feel like those are tactics and strategies that kind of come with time and also come with knowing your client. And I also feel like that's a really, really big reason why your IO person, whoever you are and whoever you're working with, you need to be really close in a way where you can feel comfortable enough to kind of talk, like have those hard conversations. Because a lot of times the things that we're going to be suggesting will change and transform their organization. I mean, even some of those consulting firms out there are calling us organizational transformation and change managers, like knowing that there is going to be things that come along. So think about how much importance of that relationship is. So I think there's a lot of layers to that question. There's no right, right way to do it, but it's a rally about knowing your people, knowing their objectives, knowing how to map, and then just being firm, but also a little bit flexible and asking that, those questions and creating that approach.
4: And that approach is really good for any situation you have when you want people to make a change their behavior or do something in particular, if you always map it back to where the to the benefit of the organization, it has a different tone to it than if you say, I really think you should do this, you know, kind of thing. So it's a, and it, but it's, it's also a key to organizations needing to
2: be aligned. And Dr. Juliet, let's go to you.
7: I forgot that I raised my hand, but while I'm here, (laughs) I do apologize, y'all. I I would say when you come into an organization I know working for the federal government and also working in um, corporate compliance, Everybody has their ABCs and one, two, threes. And I mean that everybody has some kind of code or language they use. So I would say when you join that organization, familiarize yourself with that type of language. Because I think based on understanding how the company uses their language, that may also be helpful in you being able to transfer. Um, some of that research into their version of layman's terms or their technical approach. Right. Um, We spoke, I believe it was yesterday about, um, the strategic plan, right, or the mission. When you're also able to tie things to the mission, that's also a way of leveraging research to kind of reroute them to say, okay, here are some of the challenges we're we're facing. So instead of saying industry insights, right, if you're working in the federal government, you might say, well, other agencies are doing ABCDE, right? Mm-hmm. If you're working, um, I don't know, in education, you can say we found that other higher um, education institutions are doing this thing. If you work in retail, same thing. Because one thing I will tell you from a business perspective, everybody's looking at their competition right? We don't like competition. We don't, we want to make sure that we're close to the first, if not the first or number one. So when you're able to even look across similar companies or similar organizations or similar agencies and say, okay, here are some of the things that they've done to be successful. And I noticed that our goal or our objectives on our team or in the organization are to accomplish ABCDE, perhaps we can incorporate that so that we can be successful. But again, Again, keeping in mind that not everybody uses the same, I guess, jargon, for lack of better terms, in how they speak to certain things. I will say again, a lot of when when you're in sales, and I know quite a few people reached out to me from sales, that is also valuable. A skill that you can transfer over. When you put out a business proposal, a value proposition, a business case, whatever it is, you always have to speak to where you got that information. That's usually one of the first questions I get. So you don't always have to say, okay, I went on EBSCO, I went on ProQuest and I found, you know, or, you know, I don't know, Preet and Bradshaw 2023 said A, B, C, D, E. However, in your presentation, you can at least list the link. You can list the title. You can list the organization from where you got the information. And so, when you say, you know, I found that research is suggesting, or um, you know, industry insights suggest that this may be a, a good approach to go in. Now, when they say, where'd you get this information? You can say, well, you know, I conducted a little bit of research, and these are some of the statistics and some of the specific findings I found. So now you're kind of gauging their interest and leading into, it, leading them into it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like giving them crumbs and not the whole cracker, right? To kind of get them to be interested in what you have to say. And again, piggybacking on public speaking, right? You kind of want to start small with something that captivates your audience and then expand on that. So in the same sense, when you're bringing in that evidence-based approach, you want something that can be digestible and then
2: take it from there. Thank you very much for that. Um, Dr. Destiny, let me come back to you because one of the questions I have is, does research, does it have a time limit? Uh, We sometimes, you know, I I sometimes hear Jeremy say things like, according to so-and-so, even back in the 70s, we knew, and I'm sitting there going, oh my God, Jeremy, that was 50 years ago. Don't we have any new research? So do we have to sometimes be a little cautious that that older research is no longer valid?
3: I actually think it could in a way older research could be more valid right we have some of those people that we turn to for some of those philosophies some of those methodologies some of those frameworks that have been tested tried and true over and over and over again so i do believe that there is some benefit to those things however we are in a world that is consistently changing and transforming so keeping those in mind with the new approach and that new you know methodology so i do believe that there is you like a basically a use case for using older research especially if it's some sort of you know coined term or approach or method or framework however it's important to to keep that in mind that those things can and should be modified in some cases especially if we're talking about you know taking a large construct or thing and applying it to something that is much smaller scale or something like that so
0: right.
2: Now, and I I can imagine that academia is doing a lot of research. There's I.O. programs out there, especially the instructors who live in the world of, you know, publish or perish. There's probably a lot of research that goes on, but those Deloitte's are also doing research. McKinsey's doing research. So who's really leading the charge? Is it academia or especially when it comes to I.O.'s who want to work with the business community? Is it, you know, organizations like Deloitte and McKinsey, are, they, are they, should they be our go-tos?
3: That's a great question. I want to know what people are doing out there. So does anyone have any feedback about what they're using?
2: Looks like no one's doing research today.
3: <laughs> I don't think it's that, Tom. I think that we do depend on those things. We do, you know, we pay attention to the Harvard Business Review. We pay attention to Forbes. We pay attention to the McKinsey reports. Uh, we pay attention to those things. And we should, because what we can find there are those trends. So part of this is maybe they're not, you know, maybe they're not the authoritative source necessarily, but hey, those are our competitors, <laughs> those big companies, those ones that, you know, these smaller firms want to live up to, we should probably pay attention to what they think is important, right? And we can take that information and we can modify it and scale it down and scale it across or whatever the case may be. So I do think that it's important to pay attention to those
2: sources. All right. And um, I hope we get this right. Ropa Fadzo, I see your hands up. Go ahead.
0: Correct. That's how you say it. Um, I completely agree with you,
3: Dr. Destiny, on how some of these companies do give us trends. The concern that has been noted is how sometimes it can be a little hard to generalize those insights for other populations. And that creates this really big gap between what's going on in the industry and what's going on in academia. It's like we're still light years behind trying to catch up to what's going on in in practice, for example, I think with regards to the notion and phenomenon of resistance and change, there's only about 34 empirical studies, while it's generally a, a phenomenon that everyone uses in change management. So I think that's what I had to say about that.
2: And
1: thank you very much for that. Uh, Jeremy, let's go to you. Thanks, Tom. Okay, so... I popped in and I noticed a meme in the chat, which is from the Princess Bride. So that was the first indication that I really wanted to be here. So I love that. And back to your question about the the research that was 50, that's 50 years old and, and so forth. I agree with what Destiny said. Plus, if you look about it, like, for for example, think of the like, like of a particular assessment. So some of the some assessments are really, really old, but now they're in their their fourth editions, fifth edition, sixth edition. So they keep building on more and more research. They keep building on more and more norming population because people keep continuing to take their assessments and yada yada, so they have more evidence and more evidence and they might change the scale, they might change this, they might change that. So some of the some of those things are food for thought. The other thing with the research that's been around for a while, if you think about it, we mentioned this yesterday, where the purpose of new new research is oftentimes can other research be older research be replicated so if there's older research and it has withstood the test of time with other researchers trying to poke holes in it that can also be a good thing because that's also where we get some of the important constructs and I mean when you look at how things are re- how, how things are related like even with assessments the the main like the, the assessments out there they actually correlate their, uh, their items with other assessment items. So like one assessment takes the items from another one. so it's just like self <laughs> I was gonna get so it's the opposite of the snake eating its tail. It's the opposite of whatever that one is. It's this uh, nice uh, organic and not organic, but it's a, it's a nice environment where older studies help with new thinking and those kinds of things. So I agree that the older studies aren't necessarily the other thing you mentioned in terms of like your McKinsey's and those kinds of things. That's a really good way to, and I'm just, I'm trying to pull this up so I can get the name of it. There's so much data that comes out because you've got these huge powerhouses of organizations and they have, they have the ability to do a lot of things because a, they're working with a lot of client organizations and when you do that, then you have access to a lot of data. So there, they have these really authoritative, author- authoritative reports with tons and tons of data. More for the, I won't say more for the practical use, but they're very, very helpful. They're not looking necessarily at you know intercorrelations and in conducting these studies, but they're pulling data from these large groups, and they can be very helpful. There's a uh, Randstad. That's what I wanted to mention. So Tom. You, you know, how how much we love our, our friends in Canada. I've been working for what, two years now? I don't know if you even know this, but with one of your companies, actually, I don't know if you know, we'll talk offline about it. You mm-hmm. probably use the company uh, based out of Alberta. I've been working with one of, yes, yeah, so maybe you don't know, one of these companies and I use a lot of different reports for them. And one of them, is this Randstad pay scale report to help them with compensation and determining all kinds of like performance structures and those kinds of things because there's so much data on on industries that's very important and it breaks down for example pay depending on everything from job title to type of company what are the industry standards then they put out these I mean these are like 100 page long things so there's just so much data Destiny says we use market research all the time. It's 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 true, and, and these things are so very helpful. So that's when I'll turn it to you, Tom.
2: Well, I was going to ask you, Jerry. But where,
1: you know, you're always great about bringing this research forward. So, where are your go tos? Where do you, you look online to find research? So I use so there are there is researcher-app.io, uh, scholar.edu. These are some of the, the free places for it. I know Dr. Patty from the Bridgify group has a, a ton more in terms of the free research. There's also now some AI tools out there. There's one called Elicit, where you can type in a research question and it will shoot out a bunch of research and you can click on full art, full articles where you can actually view the entire article, but it'll give you like a, an AI synopsis type thing. And then the other thing is I often go to Google Scholar is really nice and easy. Because right there, when you when you type in something with Google Scholar, it'll show up like with the PDF so you know you can access it. You can also tie Google Scholar to your college so that if you can't find one that's available open, like uh, free, available online, it'll say, hey, this one's available at your college. And I teach at a, I teach at a college, too. So I oftentimes will use my college university database because I have access to all those things but it's very helpful and here's here's two anecdotal things when you're talking about why is it so important to use or, or how how research can be used in practice. Tom, I don't remember which podcast it was, but it was it was a while ago. I mentioned how I was working with a company they were having difficulties, they can't pay their servers more, but they wanted their service to make more money. Okay. So <laughs> okay, that's not a challenge. So I, I was looking through all this research and there were two things and it actually proved helpful because I was able to find these studies where very simple. One was uh, they did a study with, and this is how we get into like research can be fun. It can be interesting and the is- insights can be uh, very helpful where servers who they ran a pilot study with one of the big chain restaurant chains for chains for nine months. And they had, in a sense, they had your control group of servers who would just give five star service. That was it. Five star service, kind of get your water, really good service. Then the other group gave you know average service, but they repeated the customer's order back to them when they ordered, and they found that that group they it was somewhere between like twenty five and thirty five percent increase in tips, simply because they made that person feel heard and understood by saying what their order was, and that created some kind of relationship, trust, et cetera, et cetera, just by, hey, I want a steak well done with fries, not too much salt, ketchup on the side, and I would like a clown to arrive too to entertain us. Okay, so you would like a clown to arrive to entertain us, you want your steak? That's all they did was just repeat the order, but they received an increase in tips. The other study I found that was helpful was uh, and, and it, by the way, if you, if, if you all are servers, cause we have some of that, some of those, we, if you have kids or relatives or whatever that are servers, give them some of these tips, help them make some more money. The other one was very simple. When you drop the check off, there was a study that was done. Simply say, it's going to be nice weather on blank day. Enjoy that day. It might be tomorrow or the next day, whatever that day is. And those people received, it was at least a 20% increase in tips simply because it eliminated the fear response of the future thus opening up people's minds reducing fear response of the future and therefore opening up their wallets to to provide bigger tips so these are really pre- hey again why shouldn't this shouldn't this session be why hire an io psychologist that we had yesterday mm-hmm. the competitive advantage that's a competitive advantage right we can't pay our servers more but how can we help our, our servers to make more money so it's very simple. We not only bring in the research and the application of workplace things in regards to engagement and reduced retention and, and all these buzzwords per se, but it's also when you when you get into it, there's so much more that can be done for those. We talk about niche areas of IO psychology practice. How about niche areas of challenges within organizations that you're not going to find unless you're going into an organization, doing correct analysis and then working with that company to find out what the root cause issues are or what their biggest pain points are and then getting in that's why ios are strategic advisors that's why we are able to take this evidence-based uh part of the practice and really augment and give them a competitive advantage and we like it too it feels good for us and it can be fun is there anyone that you think we,
2: and I'd like, I'd like to throw this out to all the IOs out there, uh, is there someone who's conducting research today that you think we should be keeping our eye on because the research they're
1: doing is is at the the forefront of the way that the business world is evolving? I don't have any, any one in particular to share. Anyone, please feel free to, we'll continue the conversation, but feel free to raise your hand if you've got a certain name, uh, a certain researcher that's, that's doing some amazing things, please.
2: Well, I'd, I'd love to get, you know, one that pops into my head that I'd love to get your opinion on because I'm kind of, um, is Harvard business. Um, some great people working there, you know, and I love some of the stuff that's coming out of there, but it always feels it's, you know, it's it, maybe because it's Harvard and it's a little bit of elitism maybe, or maybe I don't like, you know, <laughs> you know, the A-level academia, um, but there are some good things coming out of there, but but I'm not, it, it also feels a little bit commercial. So I get some strange yeah. feelings with Harvard Business. So, you know, not that they're not a great organization and and I love some of the stuff that's coming out of there uh, and people like Settle O'Neilly, who are, you know, doing great work, But but what's your feeling about
1: places like Harvard Business? So those are more of, I don't know, that's where the... I don't know if it's where we would call it a disconnect with the and why it might be difficult with the I.O. brand. Typically, yes, we are looking at those things. But when we're when and I'm, I am may be speaking for myself when I'm looking at research, I'm not thinking of like Harvard Business Review and those kinds of things. I'm, I'm thinking strictly like these academic journals, like your Journal of Occupational Health, your Journal of and I'm not even going to try to name a bunch. You guys can put some in the chat but you've got these these publications in the in these journals and that's and oftentimes what it is it's it's people from different universities that are getting together and then they're conducting actual studies right. often you you're not that and because that's where you get to the meat of everything is the actual studies and they're very they can be very boring to read because they're full of statistics. It's full of, you know, how many participants, what are the methods? What did we do? How did we validate? What did we do? Like, so it gets a little crazy, but in a single, and we've had the time after time, Tom, we've talked podcast starts, right? And I'll say, wow, I went searching for some, some research for today's topic. Within five minutes, I found this golden gem of an article. And we'll use oftentimes, sometimes we'll have five to share, but we don't get through one or two because oftentimes they provide an absolute blueprint for an organization or a practitioner to use just one because they get into basically you can take the concepts in there based on uh, the, the variables and factors, but they'll provide an outline a lot of times that you can actually turn into a very specific action plan. And if you can't find it in that one particular article, you use data mining, not data mining as the general public knows, but in what we do, our data mining is basically going to the reference section. And now you're finding all the research that an author of one particular study did to make sure they know what's already out there, to make sure they're covering their bases, they're uh, more of an SME in that particular area. But that is chock full of information. And oftentimes you'll get 20, you'll get 100 different research articles. Another tip for everyone, too, if you go to ProQuest dissertation and thesis database, that's where you can find a lot of great information as well. So if you're doing your dissertation or even doing organizational research, the dissertations, you know, they're not done by people who are, you know, seasoned experts in research. Right. But guess what? You've got probably 100, 200, maybe even 300 references, and you know that they've spent a lot of time. So you can data mine their and dissertations are often like two to 300 pages. They're they're long, but you can data mine from that too. Tom and dry, very dry.
2: Uh, well, let me ask you because you know if. If you take this research, and it's like you say, you you do some research and you find something that's perfect maybe with an organization that you're working with, and so you bring that research in, you're carrying the research forward. You're taking it into the practical application in the field, and you're going to make probably new discoveries that are going to advance that work. How do you share, or should you be sharing, what's the process of, of continually
1: moving that research forward by participating? You know, that's a good question. So I'm going to start off with this. Most articles, when you look at these studies, when you look at these these studies that are published in the journals, there's a section at the end, it'll say implications for future research. And the authors are usually very transparent about, all right, here's what we don't know. Here's what we didn't cover. Here's what we couldn't figure out. Here's what we did wrong. And if you're going to do future research on this, this is what you should do. So- The other place my mind goes, and I know this isn't exactly what you're asking, but if you're using research and then you're practicing or using that research to develop some kind of initiative within an organization, and then you're collecting data, it's probably not going to fit into that particularly because one piece of research and one study has very, very specific parameters. Mm -hmm. It's a blueprint and they provide an absolute blueprint, excuse me, of how that Particular study was conducted. So there is very slim chance that you're going to have that exact same blueprint in the study that you have in the organization. Plus, let's face it, companies don't want to get rid of their data and they certainly don't want to share that. You got to go through um, all these processes with IRBs and that kind of thing. But if anyone wants to raise your hand, because I know I'm not hitting Tom's question, please feel free to raise your hand and uh, share a little more on that. And we'll continue until someone raises their hands. But I'll turn it back to you, Tom. All
2: right. Thank you very much. I'm looking at Dr. Destiny going, is she about to hit her mute button, unmute herself, or is she reading something? I think she might be reading something. Now she's moving her lips. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What's the future of research? I mean, research itself is constantly changing. There's new tools coming up. And even, you know, with, in the field of psychology, I imagine just the, the notion that hybrid or remote work is a big change. You know, as my economist friend says, you know, there was a huge shift and even in society at the start of the industrial revolution where, you know, all of a sudden we went from most people working in agriculture and being on the farm to working in factories and industries. It And he believes, and I, I think I agree with him, where we're going through one of those pivotal changes now. So is there any research out there that talks about it in that sort of bigger picture way that it's, it's awfully hard to see change when you're in the middle of it, but I do feel that 20 or 30 years, we're going to look back and look at this time frame as a moment in time where the work world really significantly changed. So is there any research that's happening on, on those type of trends and where we might be going in the future?
3: So I want to say a few things. I think it's it, it's that's a really good question, and I think like this is something where SeaWalk especially wants to kind of move forward. We want to talk about the future of the workforce, the future of the trends, right? And so, but if we think about what the future of research looks like, period, interdisciplinary collaboration, right? So one of the things that we tend to do is focus strictly within a field of study. However, collaborations between like experts from diverse fields can lead to those innovative approaches and solving complex problems because we're seeing complex challenges, right? Another thing, technology and data analytics. I mean, data is everywhere now. You can go on Google Analytics. You can see data every, like data is being fed to us, you know, all the time through everything that we see, like AI, machine learning. Um, we can use those and leverage those technologies for things like predictive modeling and talent analytics, virtual and augmented reality. That's something else. Um, these will enhance our research methods and they can be used to simulate real world scenarios. Uh, what's interesting, I literally heard on the radio this morning about uh, a new product coming out that's AI, where you can like meet your family in like the Caribbean or some like You know, nice place in the world with augmented reality. So you put on your virtual reality and you like can see them from head to toe and you can have interactions with them. Think about the kind of research that can be done through these real world or or these simulated, you know, experiences, even for the workplace. I, and another thing comes to mind like my kids' favorite game on the virtual reality is the jobs game. Have you (laughs) ever seen that or played that where they like pretend to do different jobs and like, They pretend to be like a hot dog stand person. And like, they like, are like in an office, like, it's so cool, but like, it gives them like, like that, that in itself is research. I think it's so interesting that they find joy in that, even at 12 years old. And then, you know, longitudinal studies, that's something else that we don't see a lot of longitudinal. We don't, we, we, we focus on the data at the given time. We don't look over time, but we have enough data in our you know, books now, in most cases, in our you know history now, in most cases, to kind of look back and say, okay, what did that data say before and where is it going forward? So I think if we think about research as far as like the trends, where are we moving with the advancements, those are some things that we can kind of look to.
2: Yeah, it, it, you bring up a really good point. The technology is about to change everything. I mean, it's it's been changing things for a while now, but we seem to be at a point, especially with AI and, you know, all the advancements which are coming where it, it almost feels like overnight it is it's like someone's going to flip a switch and all of a sudden we're going to be in a altered reality so it's it, i'm not sure if i'm looking forward to the future with great excitement or a little bit of fear and trepidation uh but who knows and i know that there will be io psychologists there to help me along the way jeremy we've only got a few minutes left so anything else you want to talk about and D- destiny as well about the importance of research and, and maybe if how to embrace it more fully to move your career forward.
1: Ooh, so that's interesting. I'll say for non-IOs out there, go to Google Scholar, type in something that's interesting to you. It doesn't have to be psychology related and just get used to reading one of, one of these articles. Oh, actually, no, I'll say it should be psychology related. And here's why I'm so used to looking at psychology journals. So the other ones look a little <laughs> different to me. So because the formatting is so different and I like it, the other thing is make sure what you're looking at is validate. One of the tricks is right. You click on where it says peer reviewed, because sometimes you get these things. Also, make sure start out hard, like the the most difficult one where you're looking at an actual study not a meta-analysis, which is uh, a compilation of a bunch of study results and they talk about it. Those are very helpful, but take a piece of original research, uh, original quantitative research, where they're the, the most difficult ones to look at, where there's actual, you know, lots of participants and the statistics and all of that. Just read through one and get used to it. You may just jump to the conclusion This is always helpful, right? You just jump to the conclusion or the discussion towards the end that that section to get an idea of. It's like reading a book summary first, for example. So, and just become a little more familiar with that. I'm sure there are plenty of researchers and sort uh, places you can go and YouTube videos like how how do I review academic research and how do I read a research article. There are definitely plenty of things like that. But I mention this because. There are like, think about it. There's a lot of people that are interested in learning like Python and coding and R and all this stuff, right? It's good. That's hard. It's hard because you've got to oftentimes take uh, some kind of a course. You've got to dive in, get with people. There's something there. This can also be exciting, but it's something that you can kind of self study on your own just by finding an article that you're interested in and diving in. You don't have to know all the statistics. You don't have to know all about that, because the authors will spell it out. And even some of us, you know, I did very well in statistics. I read these research articles all the time. So much has just gone from my brain that there's plenty of stuff that I don't understand or remember, like, what does this mean? Plenty of stuff. So I'll just jump to the conclusion section and be like, all right, Mr. Uh, Discussion section, please help me out. So you don't have to be an expert at those things, but start to get uh, comfortable because there's so much that can that you can learn by doing that that can be applicable in so many different ways, Tom. Um, we're almost out of time,
2: but but I have to ask you this question <laughs> because I I I love history and archaeology, uh, and, and partially because you know I'm interested in what we as human beings were doing ten or twenty thousand years ago. Uh, but what I really love is when a new discovery comes out and someone publishes an academic paper, and then someone publishes another academic paper that says the first academic paper was a bunch of hooey (laughs) and that they got everything wrong, and then there's a third academic paper, you know, reproduced by the first people who goes, yeah, your commentary was way off base. You're totally wrong. We were right. So is there any of that that's going on in IO psychology or the study of human behavior in business where you get academics doing this?
1: Oh, if I'm re, if I'm getting your question right. Yeah. All, all the oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. All the time. it, Yeah. I mean, the it, answers, could, my could, answer, are, I are there are there any big ones that you've recently come across where it's like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> well, I think you I mean, you can clearly see it. There's this there's this level of obvious professionalism. But you can when you're reading through a journal, it's still interesting to see how they'll kind of dog each other out a little bit. Like, well, in this person's study, the other thing actually that's really good, uh, and many of you here know this, it's called Mental Measurements Yearbook. I forgot to mention this. I'm glad you said that, Tom. Mental Measurements Yearbook. You can take any. Uh, you can look at any. That's it's for. A, oh gosh, it's been. I haven't even thought about this in many years. I think that one's mainly for assessments, but they might have one for studies where you'll get two reviewers, two to four reviewers, and you'll have like two that are for it and two that are against it. So, and, or maybe it's just two reviewers and they give their uh, their pieces, but they'll tear stuff up. And exactly. hey, this isn't right. Because that's, it's all about making sure that things are up to snuff, which is why, but if you think about it, if, the, if a study is going to be published in the first place and you're reading it, the fact that it was peer reviewed there have been many academics that have gone through that with a fine tooth comb. Right. So that's the whole purpose of that anyway. So sometimes it's a little, little hard to say, Hey, you forgot this, but, and then the authors usually call themselves out too. Anyway. Yeah. Very, very true. And with that, we've run out of time. Thanks for listening to this
0: episode of work cookie, a CBOC podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C dot com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? At seabock.com.